welcome, Table Talk Radio listeners. We barely remember how to do this, but this is an episode yeah, it's been of, a while. called By the Gospel, the show where we, uh, what do we do? We, we listen to people's stories about how they came around to believe the Gospels is given to us in Holy Scripture. That's about it, isn't it? That's it. We got an uh, interview, and th- I have to apologize to Jorge. I interviewed him, how about this, September 2016. <laughs> That's when this audio was gathered. No way. That's like a year and a half ago. That's not true, I mean, is it? If, it's true. It's 100% <laughs> true. I mean, if, so if you guys feel bad that we don't get to your voicemails, imagine this. We recorded this audio for the, for the <laughs> thing, so I'm a, I'm, I apologize to Jorge that it's taken so long. It's, it, but he tells a story about coming from Pentecostal Church, and especially the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, or whatever that stands for, and uh, discovering the gospel. And, uh, and it's a long – Evan and I talked about it. This interview is about a, an hour and 20 minutes long. I uh, apologize for some of the audio at the end. It's in my car, but you can hear. Yeah, uh, I was listening Jorge to this audio. This... You're you're like recording with like a cassette tape. That's the kind of quality we're Take getting out of you. I mean, it's like. That's how long ago it was. That's what the <laughs> technology back in then. But the story is incredible and incredibly compelling. I think we'll post the whole audio. If you just want to hear my interview with Jorge in the whole hour and 20 minutes and hear all the details, uh, you can find that on our website, which is on the Internet somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> but in this show, in this show, we're going to You're gonna terrible to, at this. Um, I'm just all around. You're well, terrible. You're terrible at getting good audio. You're terrible at plugging our website. I mean, there, there's no redeeming qualities. TableTalkRadio.org The only really good thing I, I, I am good at is putting together trips to go to Greece next summer. Please make plans to join us. You're terrible us. at but shameless that, plugs. So we're going to listen to Jorge and um, and his story, uh, selected excerpts. I'm going to bring them to you, Evan, and hear you react, and we can talk about them theologically as we go. So how's that sound? Is this kind of like where uh, they you have like a YouTube video of someone responding to another YouTube video? So it's like, yep. So you want my exactly reaction? That. Okay, I'll be like. <gasps> so here's Jorge. I asked who are you. Here's my name story. is Jorge. Rodriguez. Whoa, easy. Um, I uh, was born in Puerto Rico, but grew up mostly in Florida. Um, I grew up um, in the Pentecostal charismatic realm, uh, even finding my way uh, into the New Apostolic Reformation uh, brand of theology, uh, growing up under Bill Hammond's teaching and Dutch Sheets and, and that whole uh, crew. Um, and uh, when I left home, Joined the army, did did the whole discover life thing, um, realizing that uh, no one, realizing that no one else outside of where I grew up knew anything about the NAR, um, and, and it created a, a real need to discover uh, what in fact I I believed, and so um, and then God definitely took over uh, that search. All right, so there's Jorge, his introduction and his theological introduction uh, as well. Do you know anything about this NAR? Not a lot. I know a little bit from listening to our friend Chris Roseborough over at the, you know, Chris Roseborough from Fighting for the Faith fame, you know. Um, I know. But I don't know a whole lot about it. But what I found interesting already about what Jorge has said so far is um, what sort of opened his eyes to see if this is something uh, true, something to look into deeper, to not accept at this sort of surface level, is that when he moved away from his 
area of upbringing, he found no one, <laughs> everyone was clueless about the NAR, didn't, didn't know what it was. Now, of course, that doesn't make a thing true or not true, um, but it maybe goes to say that sometimes when we're engaged in all that we've ever been exposed to, we think that this is it. And uh, everyone must um, be thinking this kind of a thing, and it isn't until we're sort of challenged by others, other ideas that we really have to look into the things that we've held as true. That's right. Jorge says, it wasn't hard to dismiss the Methodists and the Catholics. After all, they were pagan. But how can I dismiss <laughs> the other Pentecostals when they believe totally differently than I do? So hmm. here, I'm going to give you a little more flavor. Uh, I think I asked him about the first time he spoke in tongues. And Jorge's going to give them the background of what he was, uh, the kind of emotional background of growing up Pentecostal. Ready for that? I, I do, but it actually didn't happen in that church. Um, as, as a, uh, yeah, it, um, so one of the, uh, one of the big dilemmas, um, as a, as a child, I remember, um, at that church, uh, I remember having, as a child, some real fears about missing the, the rapture of the church. I remember struggling with that, um, and, and, it, and, and it would be in something as simple as uh, waking up from a nap um, in the middle of the day only to find out that, that my family had all gone outside of the house to do something. Hmm. Um, we lived on like on an acre, so if they were all hanging out outside, and I woke up in my bed, and I couldn't hear anything in the house. Um, I remember thinking, well, that's it. I missed it because I don't have it. Do you remember that the the missing the rapture fear? I remember that when the Christian radio would go silent, and I think, oh man, I missed the rapture. <laughs> or if I'd leave uh, the house and there's nobody driving around on the streets. Apparently, oh, the the it. rapture takes uh, Christian radio stations' computers along with them. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You, I I wasn't you know so in savvy on the technological side of like you are now. Back then. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Expert broadcaster. This is why you're over your so, but, rapture fear. Okay. <laughs> but the fear of missing the rapture, but then this, too. Right. Um, so that was one fear. The other thing was that I, this, this speaking tongue thing never happened. And um, I remember it being sort of an issue for um, for uh, for a couple of people that we knew at that church, too. Um, and And I remember my dad... Uh, he was being, he, he was being groomed into leadership at that church. Uh, the pastors really, really liked him and, and was really moving, pushing him to, to, to step up in leadership. And he eventually, um, he eventually had the discussion and said, I, I'm sorry, but I don't see where the speaking of tongues is, is, is biblically set up as a prerequisite or proof of salvation. So how about that? So he's starting to feel the pressure speaking in tongues because he can't do it, but his dad comes along and says, I don't see the necessity of it. That's going to change later. But this this idea of that uh, now you're being groomed into leadership, and so the pressure is to demonstrate your own um, uh, kind of connection with the Holy Spirit by speaking in tongues, that's really the mark of the modern charismatic movement uh, is that is that the speaking in tongues becomes a sign of salvation. Thoughts on that? That is interesting because it'd be one thing if these churches had a perspective on, you know, gifts of the Holy Spirit, which 
some, I mean, Paul talks this way that they're all, we are all given different gifts. And so that, um, that, that some people could possibly possess this gift of tongues. I mean, that, that would be one thing, but they go so far to say, look, if, you really have it if you really have the Holy Spirit, or if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, then that will manifest itself by being able to speak in tongues, and um, that's where you you really get this uh, um, demonic aspect of of the whole thing because now you're you're placing up certainties where there is no certainty, and you're casting into despair those who can't perform a particular way. Jorge told the story about how when he then first spoke in tongues, how you're in the middle of the service and everyone's gathered around you and they lay their hands on you and they're all prophesying. He says, and you can put it off for a little bit. You can pretend to be drunk in the spirit, to go weak in the legs, but eventually you have to say something and and you just utter a syllable and the encouragement from everyone around you is so great that then just more starts to come out. And it starts that way. And you, so you're faking it, but then at some point it starts to become real. And he said, I'm skipping a lot here to, to get to a few things later on in the interview, but he says that, that even now, years after he's left the charismatic movement and that he believes in the scriptural doctrine that, you know, spiritual gifts in at least that, that, that this idea of the charismatic gift of tongues is not a biblical gift, that even now he has to consciously stop himself from starting to utter this uh, strange language in the in, when he goes to the to church uh, now it's amazing hmm. um now i'm going to i'm skipping about 20 minutes here uh, just, so uh, the stories about the NAR and speaking in tongues to let Jorge tell the story about his dad and they're going to a small church plant and how they get involved in the NAR uh, how his dad has cancer and the, the NAR uh, team comes and prophesies over him uh, that here's how that goes part of the music team and all that um, and um, well slightly before that my dad had had a battle with cancer a uh, seven year battle uh, uh, with thyroid cancer it's really really rough time in our family um, and and uh, the you know the churches um, when you're desperate for answers uh, the churches we were a part of didn't have very many answers, but, and, and I don't know how we got, how we got connected to someone who was, uh, familiar with Christian International or whatnot, but, but when you're desperate for answers, um, and, uh, and someone offers you basically an oracle, um, uh, but in Christianese, so someone tells you that there's an apostle and there's a prophetic council having a prophetic conference, and you can f- discover the word of the Lord on you, and you already have been indoctrinated in Pentecostalism and, and charismatic teaching, well, then you go. And then so we went, and they got very promising um, prophecies, uh, bold, willful declarations that really have no... Um, they, most of them were unfalsifiable, and, and the ones that weren't were uh, uh, scripture twisted into promises specifically for my parents. And, um, Mike, what's an example? You know, I think was one of the declarations that they made. 
Um, well, one of the ones that uh, my parents held on very tightly as if uh, as their personal um, promise was uh, my mom would always say, and he will just he will restore all that the locust has eaten. That proof text was ripped out was ripped out and and included in one of the prophecies given to my dad after the after either the first or the second surgery to remove the cancer from his um from his uh neck um they had damaged vocal cords he had lost his voice doctor wasn't sure he'd get his voice back and this was shortly after he started um uh, preaching ministry for um uh, for a spanish church in the area and so um so the bold promise was that God would, in fact, that he would not only beat the cancer, that um, he'd be preaching again, and, you know, and that's, that God would restore all that the locusts had eaten. Um, and that was like, that was like the thing that uh, my parents held on to very, very tightly. Now, I, I, want, to, I want Jorge to finish telling the story because he's going he's gonna to react. He's going to think, ref, kind of reflect back on this very emotionally in just a minute and think about this. But I want to pause it there. To, to kind of see if we can get the flavor of it. So they're in a Pentecostal church, and but dad's got throat cancer, long extended battle with throat cancer. Nobody knows what to say about it, so they get connected to some NAR, and they have this way of laying on hands and prophesying over you, and they give this kind of scripture-twisted promise. The locusts, the, the God will restore all that the locusts have eaten, and that's applied directly to this cancer that Jorge's dad is going through. You see, you see the problem and the setup there, right? Yeah. And one of the thing, one of the things that stuck out to me that you said that all of these things are unfalsifiable, so that that's going to be a key thing. And a lot of these, um, I don't know what you call them, prophecies or whatever. Uh, there is no kind of objective way to prove that their validity. Um, because oftentimes what happens with this sort of thing, although I don't think Jorge has said it quite just yet, um, maybe he's getting there, but, but oftentimes what you get from these guys is, well, because it didn't happen, it's because of some shortness of your own faith. And so the lack of kind of an objective proof or objective standard is going to be one of the key markers of this kind of thing. Now, what's going to happen to Jorge is his dad is actually going to be healed. I mean, his dad is going to be healed from his cancer. Hmm. And and so Jorge, you know, you're right. This is how it normally goes the other way. You didn't have enough faith, and that pushes you into despair. But I want you to listen to, to the response of Jorge when it goes when it goes the right way, you know? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? When, when sure. healing does come. Sure. And um, uh, CI um, also has a lot. They add a lot of formula. And, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of stuff in, you know, uh, I don't know if you've ever watched, um, Chuck Pierce and, and some of his nonsense, but, um, but there's a lot of that influence. Next thing you know, we couldn't get enough of learning what, what DNAR had to offer. Um, so, you know, um, they talked my parents into, um, making a covenant with God, um, you know, uh, sort of as a, as the IOU, if you'll just heal us from this. And, and the real crime of it all are you there, Jorge? Good. I am. 
Okay. Just a minute. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Take your time. The real crime of it all is that, uh, is that God very clearly healed my dad. In his grace and mercy for all of us. And God has to share credit with these false apostles and false prophets. Wow. How about, how about that? It's a great point, huh? Yeah, so we, yeah, you're right. So I, I like I like what you pointed out. So we usually go the one way when the healing doesn't come and we say, uh, oh, oh, I mean, it's said, the reason this healing didn't come is because you didn't have enough faith. And we're going, man, how can you, how can you kick a guy while he's down? But I think, I think you're right. This is worse. So that the Lord does grant healing um, only by his grace and his mercy. And who is glorified because of this healing? Well, we are, because we did the things that God would want us to do to beckon such healing. Uh, and so now all glory, what should go to God, is shared. That's right. That's right. So this is this life without the gospel has these two options of pride and despair. And normally we talk about the dangers of despair, but this is even worse. It's the danger of pride. Here this, here this man who can perform miracles came and prayed, and now God answers the prayers, and so we send him money. We make a vow to this organization or whatever. Boy, mm. nasty. Now, uh, Jorge talked about that worship in the NAR, which everything in the NAR is then wrapped up to spiritual warfare and conquering dominions and all of this sort of stuff. But one of the side effects then is he points out that they have no, they have no category for sin. And here's how Jorge describes that. In all of this, they have absolutely no idea what to do with sin. Hmm. Yeah. Um, they have, they have, they have no language for it. They have, they have absolutely no language for sin. Uh, they, they, they barely say the word. Um, they jump straight into, uh, whether or not you have an area of bondage or you have, um, an area, uh, or you have a soul curse or you have, um, an assignment on you that you can't shake. Um, you know, uh, they make up all kinds, because everything, everything in the NAR is linked somehow to spiritual combat that you have to perform. Um, so this is, so do you see how this goes? How, because, because of this, that, that everything has to do with uh, this, these powers, there, there can be no conversation about sin and therefore no conversation about guilt and therefore no conversation about atonement, about the gospel, about how the Lord rescues us from sin and death and all of that. So, so while you're sitting there talking about how to take dominion over the city and take dominion over your life and all this sort of stuff, you're suffering with guilt, and there's nowhere for that guilt to go. Uh, there's no place for it. You know, there's no, there's no category. There's no talk of, um, of how that can happen. But the thoughts about that? Maybe because everything is reduced to uh, 
uh, immaterial spiritual battle so that when everything is in the context of um, God versus devil, um, angels versus demons, and so now where am I in the mix? I want to be on God's side. Um, everything is in the in the uh, theological abstract, if you will, um, but sin happens in the flesh, in the here and now. So, um, I mean, Jesus didn't come as an angel to redeem just a spiritual truth about us. He came into the flesh to to atone for sins, and to do that, he had to uh, spill real blood that had like some kind of a blood type that is is real to humanity um but but when you when you're reducing everything to just kind of a spiritual battle um there is no place i like what he said no idea to do uh, uh, no idea what to do with sin i wrote that down uh, so so that we, we we're we're we have sin we have the guilt of sin but don't have a theological category for it mm-hmm <laughs> Mm-hmm. And what's going to be the result? I mean, can you just imagine living with that? I mean, so all, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We Our comfort is in Christ, his death, and his resurrection. So so you're trying to wrestle with what this means, that you are a lawbreaker, you are a sin, sinner, you are by nature a child of wrath, a God's enemy, and yet there's no, there's no discussion, there's no talk of that, only of the overcoming life. And if you fall into some sort of sin, it's because a demon's gnawed into you or, or so you've got some sort of spiritual splinter that's weakening you. And the expectation is that you would live a perfect life of a, some sort of spiritual, um, giant, you know, spiritual warfare giant. But when that doesn't happen, then, you know, what are you? Where, where do you fit in? It's a, it's a phenomenally difficult, uh, question. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Uh, what, uh, the, I, I wonder where to go next. I, uh, maybe you can help me here because I asked Jorge how he first started to sense that something's wrong, and he gave us a little bit of that when he um, when he said that he went away to the military and he and he would speak. He was a Christian. But he would speak of the Holy Spirit to people, and no one would know what the heck he was talking about. He would talk about his Christian life, and everyone would look at him like he's crazy. He was in college and at the at. Um, uh, involved with Campus Crusade, and he had the same sort of thing. Uh, but he tells a story about going to a spiritual counseling center. Uh, here, I'll let you listen to that, give some more flavor. Does it sound good? Yep. There was there was a, a trend going on for spiritual counseling. You would go to these spiritual counseling centers, um, and you would be isolated uh, in a room. You spend these hours praying, and then you'd meet with counselors, that would um, uh, practice all kinds of just unsafe things. Borderline hypnosis, they claim that they would be, that the Holy Spirit will walk you through your earliest memories to try to identify um, soul hurts and soul, you know, blood curses. And then the idea was you would you pray with these people and they would, you know, um, they would break these ties so that you could live a victorious life. I did all of that. And and everything they said was was off. Um, every time someone would attempt to prophesy over me, they felt like they were grasping at straws. Nothing nothing linked up. Um, I uh, some I came out of the military, went home, and um, and I. By the time I got home after my time in the military, I had been away from the home church 
the NAR church constant teaching. I'd been away for um, seven or eight years. So he goes to the spiritual counseling center. He'd go to these groups and they'd try to prophesy over him and they would kind of, they'd be stymied. They wouldn't know. They, they would have these clear prophecies for his parents, for his mm. family, but for him, he was kind of, his, they would just get it wrong. They would say dumb things. They would not know, they would not know what to do. So he's out of the military and he, they moves to Arizona. He finds his wife there. They get married. She had grown up Lutheran, but didn't want to have anything to do with it. In fact, Jorge tells the story about how he talked his his wife into being rebaptized. They were going to different Calvary chapels and different small uh, non-denominational churches uh, there in Arizona. And then um, later they moved, I think, to Georgia. He's going to say that in just a minute where they were. Uh, when I asked him what his first exposure to Lutheran teaching was and how that came about. But any thoughts about this spiritual counseling? I This is somewhat foreign to me. I haven't heard about it, but it... it uh, one of the things that made me, um, uh, so one of the things I thought of as you were talking about that was kind of this um, borderline manipulation um, using some techniques that, whether whether they're doing so intentionally or that they perceive this as being just kind of a, a spiritual thing that goes on, the result is that there's just almost an emotional abuse that takes place uh, and and uh we man that's that's a hard thing to endure when you when you're living in a religion that interprets everything emotional as spiritual um there can be a lot of emotional abuse that takes place in a in a theology like that yeah that's exactly right and and uh and the one emotion that's missing is comfort right? yeah. i mean you don't know what to do with sin it's all about your kind of prophetic destiny to be the spiritual warrior to take back the earth for the Lord, and you're either doing it or you're, or you're not, you know, and that's demonstrated by, by your own sort of spiritual success in life and all of this sort of stuff, and then the guy comes to prophesy over you and he, and he just gets it wrong and it's got to be your fault after all, you know, for not being spiritually in touch enough to have this clear prophetic word spoken over you, hmm. yeah, just. Disastrous. Well, so back to Arizona, and they, they start going to the non-denominational churches. They basically are stepping out of the NAR into some plain Pentecostal, and they're working their way uh, towards um, some, I suppose, more normal expressions of Christianity, what we would call American evangelicalism. And that's where Jorge's first exposure to Lutheran doctrine comes. I asked him that question, when did you first hear a Lutheran? Um, and he's going to say that he, he first uh, heard uh, Chris Roseboro and he didn't know he was a Lutheran, and then he ran into Jonathan Fisk doing research on theology on the Internet because the pastor had asked him to preach, and he found out that the sermon outlines that the pastor was giving him was from some other guy, and he was researching on that. So uh, here, I'll let Jorge tell the story. The first exposure, oh, man. Um, well, uh, we were... As a result of, of my wife and I getting deeply involved in a, in a small church plant here in Georgia, um, uh, even getting to the point where, where the, the pastor asked me to, to preach, um, give a sermon on, on a couple Sunday mornings, um, 
it, it suddenly became my responsibility uh, to make sure that whatever I was teaching uh, was right. And, and, and uh, it wasn't a big, big congregation. Um, but, but I needed to make sure what I was teaching was right. And, um, but I wasn't getting a lot of real guidance, um, which had me very nervous. Uh, even, uh, the only critique I got before and after actually preaching was that I, I ran too long. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not the one, I haven't gone to seminary. I'm not, I need re, I, I need more than this. <laughs> I need to know, um, did I just, did I just lead people astray or, or what? Um, and, uh, so then I started noticing I, I had been, I had been allowed behind the curtain. I could, and, cause I, I wasn't given an outline that he had written. It was an outline that he passed to me from, uh, from Life Church, uh, from Craig Rochelle. And seeing the material that was handed to me for the first time and realizing that, that the pastor that I was under wasn't writing his sermons. He was taking them from uh, from Life Church, and Life Church freely distributes. In Craig Rochelle's church, they distribute all their stuff, all the multimedia slides, and, and they just they let it go um, because they make their money on um, uh, tithes and then the book sales and all that other stuff. But but um, when I decided to research his sermon online to try to figure out. Um, what all this means, I run into, in my searches, I run into uh, Chris Roseboro in Fighting for the Faith, uh, reviewing um, the uh, the sermon series that, that my pastor picked up after I um, started paying attention to, to the sermons that he was preaching. I th- I, there's more here, but I think this is, everything about this is fascinating to me. Um, from the fact that you have a small church plant that has a lay preacher, <laughs> you, you know, uh, that, so that Jorge here as a lay person is being tasked with some of the preaching work in this, in this church. And then that there's no theological, um, kind of checks and balances that are going on that he wants, he, he wants to be under the authority of the pastor to make sure that what he's teaching is right doctrine. He feels the responsibility. And then to find out that, that the pastor's not writing his own sermons, but he's just pulling the outline from another megachurch that's publishing the stuff and doing it on his own. Hmm. And then that Jorge goes to research this guy and finds Chris Roseboro. I mean, that's also fascinating to me. There's so much, I don't know if this is fascinating to you or to our listeners, but th- <laughs> this little vignette here is, uh, f- fantastically interesting to me. And well, you got as, thoughts on this? As, as long as you're having fun, that's all that counts. Um, no, uh, a couple of things uh, that, that, it's interesting that even I cannot hear you. Really? Can you hear me now? Are we? Rec- yeah, I got oh, you yeah. now. Sorry. There you go. Um, I turned down the wrong knob. Uh, now, what's what's interesting? It's interesting on a couple of levels because, um, first of all, you have people who are in church bodies who don't care all that much about theology. I mean, you, you don't have like a real educated clergy or uh, 
real get real deep into doctrine. It's more about kind of the the practice and stuff. But the 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 people once they're given the task of standing in the pulpit, now these people are the ones who are concerned about getting it right. I mean, um, to to be in a church body doesn't concern itself, at least in its activities, much about proper doctrine, and then a person in that church body is worried about getting something wrong. I think that says something. Uh, the other the other point was, uh, you know, doing research about this. This is the common story I've heard time and time again from people who have gone to Google <laughs> to to research a particular uh, teacher or pastor, and invariably come up with Chris Roseborough doing a critique. And people will listen to Chris Roseborough. Now, uh, I assume that probably a lot of our listeners know who Chris Roseborough is, but for those who don't, he hosts a radio program, Fighting for the Faith. And, um, you know, we, we, we play his show on our local radio station here in Rogue River, and it's probably the, the show we get the most complaints about because he's comes off kind of rude. Um, he kind of resorts to a lot of mockery as he is critiquing things. And this angers a lot of people. But what we found from many people uh, who have done the searches and from Chris Roseborough uh, has relayed these stories as well, that people will get mad and set out to prove him wrong and get their Bible out and they start looking up verses and eventually they find out what Chris Roseborough was saying is true, that this is um, th- that these, these, this preaching is false, in fact. And so it's it's an interesting kind of tool to get people into digging into the truth. Let's see if Jorge follows that pattern. <laughs> you ready for this? Yep. Um, and it was, uh, I don't remember which episode. It was an older episode at the time, but it was when, um, it was when, uh, it was a greater series. Um, it was a sermon series about, uh, about Elisha. There was a lot, there was a lot of isogesis going on. And, and I, I was being introduced to these things, these concepts of, of um, exegesis versus eisegesis, and um, I <laughs> and I had probably the most stereotypical uh, reaction to Chris Rosebro um, that you that that any charismatic would have. I, I was indignant. I was insulted. I was upset, and I was determined to prove him wrong. <laughs> Uh, but I couldn't. Um, <laughs> That's great. Uh, I was, I was, um, and 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 I, I at first I didn't realize he was he was Lutheran when I was first um, hearing his show and doing searches. All I was interested in was trying to figure out what to do with Craig Grishel. <laughs> like that was that was a fifty meter target. What do I do with Craig Grishel? Um, but clearly, uh, he was, he, uh, Chris Roseborough was, was quenching the spirit, um, because he would flat out make fun of all things charismatic and Pentecostal. Okay, fine. I- so, cause of Roseborough's quenching the spirit. <laughs> That's great. I mean, just exactly what you said. We, and we've heard this story over and over. God be praised for the work that Chris is doing. Uh, I mean, he's a friend. Um, we don't, you know, you could, we, there's different things that, uh, we might disagree about, but just to, to see that, that as he, you know, is go, he goes out and I, he identifies the false teacher and he's doing this great service to the church. 
by calling out this um, these errors and um, and and Chris will talk about this how his job is to be out there and to catch them and then it's up to us to clean them. <laughs> so 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 he goes out there and he finds the evangelicals that are serious about the here's the here's the thing to notice the pattern at least at, the, at least the story. Maybe not the pattern, but the story for Jorge. If someone's interested in theology, they go looking to see if what the ter- church is teaching is right. And, um, and the answer is, no, it's not. And where, where are they going to find the right doctrine then? Uh, the catechism. But it's going to take a while to get there. For uh, Jorge, it's going to take a, a special long while. But, there's, but, but as he's searching for this stuff, he runs into another of our friends, Jonathan Fisk. So I want to get a couple of minutes of this. And and then um, and then he's going to tell the story about the biggest barrier. This is a long this is a long part of the story, but it's actually what I want to get to. But here, let's uh, hear what he has to say about Jonathan Fisk and worldview everlasting. I did some more searching, um, and uh, on a different topic, probably a month later, I ran into um, uh, a younger pastor, um, John, Jonathan Fisk, on WeTV. And I was just like, what? This guy is, is completely in your face. Uh, <laughs> um, and he's, he's, he's taking it to the Calvinists. He's taking it to the Charismatics. Uh, and, and I ran into the series when he's really pushing the, um, Douglas Judas book. Uh, pretty, pretty hard. Evaluating the Charismatic, uh, gifts, I think is, right. is the name of that book. But, but uh but so that was that was my those two were my first encounter with lutheran uh with lutheran dog with lutherans um outside of my wife who just says who at the time was just well that was where i grew up but i really i couldn't tell you what it is right so there's the exposure. Now this is, I mean, it's sometimes Evan, it's a reminder. You know, we are always trying to quit doing this show, trying to figure out how to stop. It just keeps going and. Mm-hmm. We want to, but but it's it's great. I mean, these stories, these reminders that when the gospel is out there, the Lord will use them when He calls and gathers and enlightens His church. So He runs into Roseboro, He runs into Fisk, uh, and the work that they're doing. I'm surprised He didn't mention Table Talk Radio. He just might have overlooked it. Uh, yeah, I'm sure not pivotal <laughs> in that journey, I guess. Um, but but I think the point here is is that um that 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 people are. I mean. This is what I what I always try to, to say that we're not we're not trying to just grab people to our particular brand of Christianity as if we want you know um, trying to uh, increase membership more than the other other guys. Um, but what we're interested in is that uh, even though um, other Christian church bodies are are um, in some places still getting the gospel out, that is to say, simply the message of Jesus dying for sinners. Um, that is not the message that people who are still in the churches are hearing. And so what they're leaving their people with is, um, well, it's not the gospel. Maybe, maybe it's the law. Sometimes it's not even that. <laughs> but, but, but the people are falling into despair and staying there without the message, the continual message, the continual continual preaching, the, the great foundation of uh, Christ crucified for sinners, even sinners who have been Christians for 10, 20 years. And what the common the, the common thread in all of these kind of stories we listen to is that people uh, find their comfort and rejoice and their rest 
in the message of what Christ has done for me. That is going to come up in just a minute, and we're getting ready for the good stuff. So we are now about to transition. He's going to, uh, Jorge is going to talk about the biggest barrier for him becoming Lutheran, and, and it's, our, it's our doctrine of baptism is the biggest barrier. But as he, gets, as he describes that, he's also going to talk about the brightest, the brightest gem, the thing that attracted him about the Lutheran doctrine. And this is, this is worth the price of admission right here. So this is a longer uh, clip, um, and, uh, and Jorge's going to be emotional about this in a, in a wonderful kind of way. Uh, but so, so here's his, his conversation there. Well, oh, okay, but, but the reason why I'm setting it up is to see if you have any sort of, if you want to clean anything up from what we've got so far. No, I think uh, we're, from, yeah, we're tracking right along with you. All right, so here we go. I, I got to tell you, uh, the biggest barrier to come to coming home to the Lutheran confessions, the biggest barrier for me ended up being the efficacy of baptism. Huh. It was the monolithic barrier. As soon as I heard the Lutheran teaching of what communion was, it, it clicked. It made absolute sense. There was there was no resistance in me whatsoever on the importance of communion, that it was a means of grace. I mean, the words uh, for the forgiveness of sins were read so clearly. And then also realizing how poorly communion is done in, in the charismatic circles. I mean, it's just, you know, it's purely, uh, I think... The, the biggest, the brightest gem in the Lutheran teaching I was hearing from Chris Roseborough and from Jonathan Fish, the brightest gem, sort of the, uh, the beacon, the lighthouse, if you will, was, uh, was the concept of rightly distinguishing law and gospel. I held on to that so hard. And I don't remember, I don't remember exactly when that clicked, but it was long before, it was long before I started reevaluating what I thought of the sacraments. It was my road to the sacraments. It, It finally gave me something to do with sin. It gave me something to It gave me a lifeline out of despair. Reading through the thesis statement, I don't know, is it 25 or 28 theses? 
that CFW Walther put together on the uh, Distinguishing Law and Gospel by re just reading through the thesis statements and seeing him point out scenarios where law and gospel are rightly distinguished and then when they're confused and to see how many how many of those things will basically every church service I can remember and how how crippling it is um at some point along the line, Chris Roseberg shared uh, a recording of Rod Rosenblatt's teaching or lecture on um, the gospel for those who have been broken by the church. And uh, my wife and I must have listened to that six times in one week. We um we uh you know I community made sense so then so community so I'll stop it there because he's gonna go back to talking about baptism but ju- but the uh, the way that Jorge talks about the this the gem of the proper distinction between law and gospel is fun I mean it's just phenomenal absolutely phenomenal the, uh reaction to that oh it's beautiful um and that is the ticket i mean um lutherans will talk about law and gospel quite a bit and uh, you and i have talked about this before that uh, uh luther talks says that that the one who can rightly distinguish between law and gospel is deserving of a theological doctorate and sometimes those within the Lutheran Church will will treat it kind of like learning your ABCs in kindergarten, and now you got now you know your alphabet. We don't really need to go back to that anymore. But there's the there's a depth to law and gospel that we ought not grow tired of, and the result is troubled souls like Jorge's who um, hears this. And finds uh, joy because in rightly distinguishing law and gospel, he sees his Savior truly for the first time. Now, I want you to just kind of think about that. A person can grow up in the Christian church and know all about Jesus and maybe even know the doctrines of, of uh, the Trinity and the uh, two natures of Christ and this kind of a thing. But until we realize what it what god is doing when he commands us things and w- what he has done in the glorious news of the gospel that it absolutely requires nothing of us um but it all wholly points to jesus and his work to redeem us um that is where we really see our savior for the first time it's it's stunning i mean here so so your whole life you're trying to deal with sin <laughs> And to realize that finally that God has dealt with it already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your whole life you're trying to deal with guilt and to realize that God has dealt with it already on the cross, that this is what it's all about. And whatever else, I mean, if Christianity is not about believing the gospel, then it's nothing. And 
I don't know, sometimes I think one of the dangers for the Lutherans is that we forget this. You know, we're so used to hearing law and gospel. Like you said, we get tired of it. Mm-hmm. But this is our life, you know. it's our From beginning to end, it's our life. And, and it's also, I mean, as far as evangelism and apologetics go, it's the thing that, I mean, the evangelicals might be ready to reject our doctrine of baptism or our doctrine of the Lord's Supper, but they're not ready to reject the doctrine of law and gospel. They don't have a way to throw that out yet. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's unthrowable outable. It's just the very center and heart and core of everything, but they don't have it. Well, we can, we can thank and God for do. a CFW author also because, I mean, um, uh, in theory, all, all Lutherans have law and gospel by virtue of the, the confessions. I mean, we could even back up further. All Christians have law and gospel by virtue of the Bible, uh, but it was clarified in the, uh, Book of Concord, but still all, Lutherans don't rejoice in this distinction. Um, and so I think one of the reasons that uh, Lutherans of the Missouri Synod variety uh, tend to um, emphasize the law gospel distinction um, so much is because it was handed down to us through the first president of the Synod, uh, C.F.W. Walther, through the uh, the lectures that he did at seminary. Now, I mean, just think about that. I mean, I don't know the history. I'm going to just make up some history here for a second. But someday Walther is getting older and he's thinking, you know, I'm not going to have forever to do this seminary president thing. I'm not going to forever do this pastor thing. I should uh, I should um, come up with the, these series of lectures to give to my students on Friday nights. Again, I'm just making this history up. But uh, but it, the result is the theses of the proper distinction between law and gospel. And this has been the book that has helped us so clearly to see uh, how law and gospel are rightly distinguished, and what happens when they're muddled and confused. And this is not only the book that all um, uh, pastors read as they enter the seminary and learn how to preach, but it's also the book that uh, that people like Jorge read to uh, to learn about their Jesus. I mean, this is fascinating stuff. And how about Jorge says, I was reading through the thesis on how law and gospel is wrongly divided, and he says it was like a description of every church service I've been to my whole life. <laughs> yeah, that's something. <laughs> I mean, that's right. That's how it is out there. That's the problem. Law and gospel wrongly divided. It, it pushes us to pride or despair, and it steals from us the comfort of the gospel. And you hear it. When it's rightly divided, that comfort comes through. Ah, oh, it's fantastic. Well, I have, so we're winding down to, how much time do we have for recording? Because I'm, I gotta know if, I have three questions. I wanna know if we do all three or skip one. I don't know what our timeline is, but we are 50 minutes in at this point. 50, okay. Let's, um, uh, let me hear a little bit more on Jorge. He talks, he's gonna talk about the efficacy of baptism and what the real, uh, he, how he sorted out what the real question was. Made sense. Long gospel was so precious. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to examine baptism for a number of reasons. Um, so we ended up spending a year in a Reformed Baptist church that had a, a, a more liturgical format. They held a high view of scripture. Um, and they did communion better. I was never, I was never really tempted to accept Calvinism, though. Um, there's, 
there's no assurance there. And I basically spent my whole life looking for assurance. Did you hear that? I'm positive there. There's no assurance in Calvinism, and I'd spent my whole life looking for assurance. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's something. Like, man. I mean, so, so for someone who, have, who, 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 like Jorge, has left the uncertainty of Pentecostalism and then go to Calvinism, he's right back where he started. <laughs> that's right. But he's still, but he won't go to this. He thinks baptism is what's pushing him off, but finally he has to face up to it. Um, there's just no appeal in any of that. Um, and I had already, I already had law and gospel as a concept that I needed to hold on to. Um, and I'd also been shown, uh, demonstrated from fighting for the faith how to, you know, let this text teach the doctrines. And so that just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile Calvinism with pretty much half the New Testament. <laughs> but it wasn't until uh, we kind of got burned in that um, at, at that Reformed uh, Baptist Church, and I decided um, it was time I I examined this thing about infant baptism. I, I you know, it's a common. It's a common thing for uh, for evangelicals and, and, and Baptists to think that the core of the issue is this whole infant baptism, right? Um, they'll argue it. They'll argue against it. But the truth of the matter is that is a, uh, that's a, that's a corollary argument. That is, that is a, um, that is a, a second order of effect type argument. Uh, the real question isn't whether or not babies should be baptized. <clears throat> the real question is, what is baptism? What does it do? Who is doing the work? And after hours of wrestling with it, there's great material. Fighting for the Faith has a, has a good document. Um, I listened to Several Jonathan Fisk's uh, videos from World Fear Everlasting. I listened to. I listened to a lot. I, I think I. I think I dedicated. I think I listened to eight hours of material in three days, wrestling with it. And. Um, and. And. I, I really wish that that I could <laughs> that I could point to some deep theological points or uh, scripture that just like open like you know I, I really wish I could say I have just never seen that before. <laughs> but um, ultimately, there was a there was an appeal to the church fathers. Um, there was uh, in one of the documents that I was I was reading and. It was on the issue of uh, Cyprian of Carthage was writing uh, to Fidus, and this is you know two two fifty ish AD, right? And and he's making the argument about infant baptism, and it's about whether or not 
the church should wait till the eighth day because that's when the circumcision of the Old Testament took place. And I'm sure the aha, you know, like that moment that sort of forces you to, to reconsider what what your deeply held preconceptions is. I mean, that that's a very personal thing. Like whatever whatever tool actually breaks you. But realizing that the debate in the first 300 years of the church wasn't wasn't whether or not we should also baptize infants, but whether or not we should delay it a couple of days to the eighth day. Uh, so my head exploded a little bit, and then I started noticing, and then all of a sudden all the baptism passages came, opened up. Amazing, huh? How about hmm. that? Yeah. So, so what, what he thought was a big debate, at least in his own mind, about whether we should be baptizing babies or not, uh, wasn't even a debate around 250. They're going, I don't know, is the sixth day okay, or should we wait till the eighth day? <laughs> That's right. And, and that was, I mean, he's right that there's a, there's like a film over your eyes when you are an evangelical reading the Bible about baptism. And, um, and it's a, it's a weird sort of thing to track what opens that. If it's a Bible passage or if it's a, it's a rhetorical, uh, device or here it was a piece of history that kind of the, where the, where the, um, you know, the scales fell off the eyes and then you could see clearly. And he goes on to talk about how then he come, he comes across first Peter three twenty one baptism now saves you. And he says, I could not have read that before. There's no way I read through the new Testament, you know, a dozen times in my life and no way I could have read that before because now all of a sudden it shines through with this great clarity. This is fascinating to me. Yeah, really thoughts, thoughts about this on baptism. Uh, well, I think, I think it is, Still, that law gospel distinction, and he even said it that it's it's not even a question uh, whether this is something for babies or not, but it's a question of what is baptism. Um, is baptism something that I am to be doing unto the Lord, uh, or is baptism something God is doing unto me? That's the law gospel difference. And uh, once we actually realize what baptism is. Then we see who it's for, but we it, not the other way around. We don't start by asking, "All right, who is baptism for, and what is it?" It's the it it's, it goes, "What is it first? That's right. That's right. I asked Jorge the last two questions I asked were, and you could tell I had to start driving. This was this was hot, by the way, when I was recording this in my uh -huh. truck, mm -hmm. and I just about passed out because I think I was stopped and pulled over, and I had the windows up so that the sound wouldn't, you know. Anyway. I started driving, so sorry, everyone, about the change in the quality of the audio from bad to worse. But the last two questions are important because I asked Jorge uh, what, you know, if there's people who are from the NAR, New Apostolic Reformation, listening to this, what would you, what would you say to them? And then I asked him, uh, what would you say to the Lutherans about uh, your own story and what you have? So uh, here's first, what would you say to the NAR? Uh, well, for, the, um, for those that are in the NAR... Um, and and maybe feel like something's something's amiss, but um, but not sure what. And I would say uh, that the the most important thing is to return to um, return to this to the. 
scriptures and 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 I've I've actually told people I know this learn to read the scripture in larger chunks read them the way they're written and you will find that nothing the NAR teaches you can be built from scripture as it's written absolutely nothing um, read in larger chunks particularly the epistles I mean you read a letter read it as a letter it's actually teaching all that you need to know for life and godliness what do you think about that advice uh, that I mean that should be the advice for everyone and <laughs> I mean anyone and everyone right I mean so that we'd return to the scriptures and and read the Bible in the context in which it was given so read the entire letter and uh, and see if what we believe stands up to the proof of the text to the Lutherans this is the last question and so to us what does Jorge have to say as a as a person who's somewhat new to the Lutheran faith, but who found it? Um, and, and here's his answer to that question. Uh, Lutherans who are probably in disbelief that any of this really happens today, um, uh, I, I just encourage you, first of all, remain Lutheran. Be <laughs> Lutheran. Um, and and uh, what you have you have access to the to to the rest uh, in the gospel the rest that's found only in in the gospel that exists nowhere else that I've found the liturgy is precious Rightly dividing law and gospel is not just is not just um, something. It's not just a, a, a skill you use to to impress um, a Sunday school teacher. It is it is life. So I would say um, learn to incorporate the law and gospel distinctions in your everyday conversations with evangelicals and because they are hurting they have no idea what to do about it they are sinning and have no idea where to get absolution they have no idea how they can well they have no idea that the gospel is for them still so law and gospel distinction is the best way to get the gospel back up into the front of their minds, back up into the conversation, back up into the daily working of their, their Christian walk, because they have not heard the gospel in a very long time. They've heard the word gospel, but they are completely removed from what it actually is, and that it's to them. Wow. <laughs> You're right. That audio did get worse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, no. I know, it's horrible timing. I mean, I was about to die, so I had to turn on the air conditioner anyways. Who uh, are you? But oh, it's Jeff for the, like, the best stuff that Jorge had to say. Uh, what, so, Lutheran, stay Lutheran. You have, and he, you mentioned this at the beginning of the show, and, and Jorge came back to it. You d- hadn't heard any of this before, so this is fantastic. Uh, that the Lutheran Church has rest in the gospel that nobody else has. And that's our real, absolute, true treasure, is that rest. I like what he said too that that you know our our friends in in various churches they they uh they've heard the word gospel but they actually haven't heard the gospel um and why because they haven't heard this distinction between law and gospel um but it's interesting what he said that they're uh they have no idea that that Jesus is still for them and, th- and that is true one of the one of the marks that we see is uh that the the gospel is the thing that you need to become a Christian. Afterwards, it's uh, getting better. It's behavior modification. It's overcoming your own struggles. And where the Christian is left without is without the message that Jesus uh, forgives me here and now for my continual struggles and doesn't abandon me, that, that, that his cross is the thing that I need to hear in the here and now so that I can have comfort for my soul. That's right. And I, I'm very grateful to Jorge for this interview and for reminding us of that truth. What a fa- uh, absolutely fantastic. What, any, um, what, what do you think about the whole thing, the whole arc here, uh, Jorge's? And I think that if you guys are interested in hearing the whole thing, we'll just take the raw audio, right, and post it up there. Yeah, we'll put it uh, under the show notes for, for this episode. So just check it out at uh, yeah, tabletalkradio.org. Uh, overall, we skipped I, I, a lot, a lot of the stories. Yeah. O- overall, I think this is, um, uh, uh, I think, a, a story of a, of a man who knows what it's like to really be without the gospel, and um, that's sort of where you have to be uh, to to hear to hear this. So, I mean, we, we'll talk about those who are struggling with addictions before. Before they can get help, they need to hit rock bottom. And there is a sense of that to be true also, to hear the truth of um, of Lutheran doctrine, that you have to be sort of um, prepared and ready. And the preparation comes from um, being crushed by the law to just really understand that, look, my own efforts are just giving me more death, <laughs> more um, depravity, more hopelessness. It's... It, it's when I am brought low that the Lord comes and, uh, and and gives me his gift of life. And to know that this preaching is for Christians, right? Mm-hmm. That this preaching of Christ is not only for those who, who don't know of Christ, but it is for those who do know the name of Christ, that Jesus wants to continue to tell us that he loves us. One of the marks, strange marks of evangelicalism is that it's, it's always looking for like the least common denominator. You know, what what's the least I have to do to be saved? You know, if I just believe, is that enough? Or if I just do this, it's enough. It's the question about the, the, like the least. But Jesus is not interested in that question at all. He is looking at his Christians and saying, I've got more for you. I've got more comfort. I've got more love. I've got more kindness. I've got more mercy. I've got more forgiveness. I've got more confidence in my, uh, in my grace. It's all of this is also for you who are called by my name. I have it for you. And and we as Christians uh, ought to rejoice in that constantly. This this joy and love 
that uh, that comes from the love of Christ for us. This is our treasure. This is and this is our life. And uh, it's the it's the treasure of a, of the individual Christian, and it's also the treasure of the Christian church. That's why that's why, by the way, Evan and I get so kind of we get so grumpy about those who would teach false doctrine is because it's stealing away this great joy and this great confidence that we heard that Jorge has and that the Lord intends for all of us to have. You're especially grumpy, though. (laughs) All right. Well, hey, thanks for tuning in to another edition of uh, Called by the Gospel. Where there are no points. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a Price is Right song. Yeah. (laughs) It's too good to joke around with, man. (laughs) 